The Guardian. Hello and welcome to our very last Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane. Me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. As we've said these last few weeks, things may sound a bit different than normal as we are all staying at home and recording remotely, so we hope you'll bear with us. This week, we talk to Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak about what can be done to tackle the climate emergency. And later, we'll be discussing our favourite moments and interviews from the book's podcast over the years. In 2009, the UN Climate Summit in Copenhagen ended in failure when governments around the world failed to reach an agreement on how to tackle the climate crisis. Then along came Cristiano Figueres, the Costa Rican diplomat who spearheaded international talks and brought the world together to reach the historic Paris Agreement, where, just six years after what came to be known as Brokenhagen, 195 countries came to a consensus. Now she has teamed up with her former strategy advisor, the environmental economist Tom Rivet Karnak, to examine what the next 30 years will bring in their book, The Future We Choose. When they came into the studio before the outbreak, Richard started by asking them why, with the world staring down the barrel of climate disaster, they present our current emergency as a choice. Because it is a choice. It is a choice that we are making either unconsciously or that we can make consciously. And the difference between that is that the unconscious choice that we are making, i.e. following the same patterns, the same behaviors, the same investment decisions, the same policies that we have right now will lead us into an absolutely unmanageable world that will be under constant destruction and increasing human pain. But what we have to understand is that it is a choice, unconscious, but it is a choice because we have another choice. And that choice is the conscious, deliberate, intentional choice that we all can and must make to reduce our emissions and thereby lead us to a much better world. And and I think just, you know, what one other additional piece to what Christiana said is, is climate can often feel out of our hands. You know, it can often feel remote and like we don't have an impact and we can feel a bit powerless. And I think as we started to think about it, and and because this is a choice, right, but that we have to make collectively, putting that, framing it in that way, we hope, will will be part of what the book does in helping people to feel more engaged with the issue and like they are an active participant in creating the future. They're not just subject to it. The double portrait you present of what could happen if we do nothing or what could happen if we change is very starkly divided. I mean, do you think that's how it is, that it's either great or terrible? Is there no territory in the middle? (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, there are lots of different ways the future can turn out, right? And so what we've done here is we've taken um, the two scenarios that really that really guardrail that one is um, a certain number of commitments were made by countries. Paris composed of two parts. One is a long term commitment to get to net zero by 2050. And the other is a series of steps every five years. So we've assumed that no country ever steps up any further than what they did in Paris. And we aim for, we get to almost four degrees by 2100. That's the bad one. That's the bad one, right? And so that's, you know, a guardrail of, of what's possible. And we looked at the best science, we sort of scoped it out. But what we do in the book is we try and take people on a kind of an immersive journey to that world and what that would look, 
what it would look like and also critically what it would feel like to live in a world where we had failed as the generation that was taking the decisions at this critical moment. And then the other pathway um, is where we really did it and where we actually did what was necessary and what was required of us at this moment using all the technology, all the political will, all the assets that we have at our disposal right now and we made the change that was necessary and what that would look and feel like. And of course, they're completely different worlds. And right now, we're living at the fulcrum between the two. So how do we get to the good one? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Figure out what emissions you're responsible for, what your carbon footprint, whether that is you as an individual, you as a family, you as a corporation, if you are responsible for a corporation, or if you can actually influence the decision of a corporation, or a financial institution, or a church, or a community, or a state, uh, or a federal government. Each one of us as human beings, as individuals, we all have a carbon footprint, personal and at many other levels, depending on the roles that we play in society. And so we have to first figure out what that level of carbon emissions is that we are responsible for, or that we can influence or that we can control, and then divide it by half. And decide that that is the level that we are going to be at by 2030. So one half emissions by 2030. It's, as you say, it's pretty simple. Straightforward, isn't it? I, I mean, the equation almost could obvious. On, the equation could not be simpler, right? I'm not one for, for equations, but this one is very, very simple. Put whatever the number is that you're responsible or can influence at the top, and then a little line, divide by two, and whatever comes out after the equal sign, that is where we all have to be over the next 10 years. And it is entirely possible, right? If we said this has to be done in one week or one month or even a year, that would be much more difficult. But it is entirely possible. Except that I think you've slightly cheated. Because what okay. I said was I said, how do you get then? What you've answered is where, where do, do we, we have to, get to be? To? Okay, 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 okay. Well, but, but you know, actually, I think you're cheating too. <laughs> because um, you can't really start to figure out, you know, where are my, uh, where can I reduce? You can reduce in your transport, you can reduce at home, you can reduce in your food habits, but you can't really start there unless you have identified where your emissions are and what your level is and unless you have decided, and that's the whole point, we have to decide choose to, to use the word that is on the front of the book we have to choose to make this our intentional pathway so stage one is destination stage, stage one is get into the frame of mind that we can actually do this then figure out where you are today and what the destination is and then figure out how are we going to get there okay. and, and we have at the end of the book we don't need to get anxious this is not overwhelming. This is actually very doable. At the end of the book, we have actually 10 actions that can help us all independently of where we stand in society. If we're only responsible for ourselves, for our family, for a city, for a whole country, independently, 
it is actually applicable to all of us. And Tom is now going to summarize that for us. <laughs> I'd be <laughs> delighted if you summarize it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but in the book, the 10 actions you lay out are yeah. all relatively broad. They're quite high level. They're things like uh, let go of the old world, face your grief, but hold a vision of the future, defend the truth. All of which I think are great, marvellous, but they're not very concrete. So I would suggest that there are three subcategories of actions within those 10. And I'll explain what those are because they do range from how we show up in this challenge also to what we do in a very granular way. So, so as, you've, as you've described there, the first question is, at this absolutely pivotal moment in human, human evolution, this once in humanity opportunity we have to stabilize the climate before it's too late, which is the next 10 years. That's a lot for people to face, right? And showing up in that can be quite, can introduce induce anxiety. It's so, terrifying. It's terrifying, right? And so part of the book and the central Or section, exhilarating. Or exhilarating, right? Depending on your attitude, that's the point. So, so, so we'll get into that. That's about these mindsets that we draw out. But you are specifically about the actions, and part of that is broad as well. So in the actions, the first one is, is what, how do we, what's our attitude? How do we show up for this as human beings? And the things you talked about there are part of that. I mean, there is a real risk at the moment that we get gripped by this sense of nostalgia. And from a political narrative level, that begins to dial us back. Whereas we need to face the future with more courage than that. The future is going to be different to the past. That doesn't mean it has to be bad. Completely the opposite. It can be great. But you see these political slogans. I mean, not, not commenting on them more broadly than that, but they're laced with nostalgia take back control make america great again they're all about hearkening back to some imagined past rather than facing the future with the courage that we need to so 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 that's the first part like how we show up the second bit is our responsibility for our own lives now some people say that this doesn't matter and we can't change the system by how we engage we think it's really critical because it makes people feel more engaged with the issue makes them feel a greater sense of participation and control it also is significant if a lot of people do it and christiana pointed this out a minute ago you know we can all identify what our footprint is and over the next 10 years we can cut it in half we tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 and if you plan it out over 10 years you can invest in capital intensive items you can change your life to make that work we also go into things like diet and very practical ways you can change your personal footprint but that won't get us all the way there right the final section the subsection i would refer to is about how we engage with power you know we need to use our voices at this critical moment the civil disobedience on the streets that we're seeing around the world is hugely encouraging and actually that only needs to get to about three and a half percent of the population to precipitate a major change history shows us that um so political engagement voting being on the streets engaging with corporate power so those are the three levels how we show up what we do in our own lives and how we engage with power that we take people through. You say that we need a major change, that, that we need a total shift in our thinking, that we need to remake ourselves in order to have a planet we can actually live on, which gets a round of applause at The Guardian. But what about people who don't agree? Well, I think that there's different categories of people who don't agree, right? I mean, there are people who don't believe in the science. There are also flat earthers, right? That doesn't stop the earth from being round. And actually, there is a significant number of people now who really understand the nature of the emergency and really want to do something significant about it. So I would focus on that rather than that increasingly small minority, although be it important in some parts of the world, that can't stop us having momentum. And then there are different attitudes in terms of how we respond to this, you know, left of centre, right of centre, etc. 
that's fine. And actually, that's the kind of good, thoughtful discussion about how we deal with this that we need to have in terms of the response, political and economic. Because that's one of the things that, reading your book, it strikes me as very much a kind of left-wing thing. You talk about collective action. You talk about about what other people can do together, how we need to come together to, to fix it. What do you have to offer people on the right? Well, we talk about economic growth. We talk about investment in technology. We talk about innovation. You know, I wouldn't suggest that that's a left-of-centre series of policies at all, actually. I think we'd have drawn from left and right in constructing that argument. I'm not sure that we draw from left and right. I think what we're saying is... There is no left and right on this, right? What we're saying is this is a human issue. And, you know, belonging to a political party or allegiance to a certain uh, a, a certain subset of, of political philosophies, um, isn't, this is not what this is about. This is about the future of all human beings independently. And we're all allowed to have our political allegiance, and, and we certainly do. Um, but that's not what this is all about. And I'm, I'm going to Australia tomorrow, uh, where, you know, we've had these amazingly horrible, horrible bushfires that have killed a billion animals, burned to death, um, 3,000 homes, 34 people. I am willing to bet that the wall of fire never stopped at the gate of any home to ask for the political allegiance of the inhabitants of that home. It has nothing to do, nothing. And those mothers that had to get up at midnight or at two or three o'clock in the morning, drag their children out of bed and run to the ocean and get into the sea to protect their lives, it doesn't matter what their political allegiance is. That's the point. Climate change is actually impacting us all as human beings. So this book is not about party party policy. It's not about, uh, you know, what are your philosophical, ideological, political positions. This is, if you are a human being, then this book is for you. It doesn't matter what your religious principles are, what your political principles are. We all are entitled to that, but this is above those divisions. Yeah, and, and I would say, I mean, Totally agree with that. And I think that um, the things we try and bring together, right? So we run a podcast ourselves, which is called Outrage and Optimism. And we've run it because, you know, we believe that those principles are both essential. The kind of outrage of pushing for change and the demanding of it, which sometimes gets associated with with protest and issues on the left in some countries. And and optimism, you know, the investment, the innovation, the technology, the, the solutions. And in the podcast, you know, we talk to people as diverse as like John Kerry and Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough and Ellie Golding. And we, we sort of have these discussions that bring together um, both of those two different seemingly separate narratives to deal with this issue. And that's also partly what we try and bring together in the book. Yeah, but except that you say that, that, that it's evident, it's obvious that we're in danger from this immediate concern. But the problem is that there are people who don't think that's the case, have got control of the levers of power. Well, not necessarily. They have control in some countries at some levels, but they certainly do not control all the levers of power in any country. Um, and the United States is the best example of that because you have a federal government uh, that has the position that it does, sadly, uh, but you also have uh, the both the public and the private leaders in many 
powerful uh, states and cities and corporations and investment companies that totally understand what's going on and that want to do well by themselves and by their customers or their citizens. So, oh, so you mean the narrative that kind of owns the political sphere in the States is undermined by something else that's going on in the real world? Undermined, yeah. I guess that has a positive, a negative connotation. I'm looking for a verb that has a positive connotation because I think in this case the undermining is actually quite positive. <laughs> Subverted, perhaps. No, there you go. <laughs> Because what's happening at a federal level isn't necessarily what's important in the states. Well, it's it's not what is um, what is influencing or controlling the entire path and evolution of the economy. Sixty five percent of the economy continues to decarbonize, and despite the fact that uh, that we have some very loud. Uh, national leaders that uh, that are very much against the progress of public safety. Um, we do already have 49% of the global GDP, the global economy, that is under some type of regulation uh, that leads to zero net emissions by 2050. So, the, you know, the, the, the interesting thing of the moment that we're living is that both realities are present right now. We definitely have the presence of a reality that would want to keep us in very, very dangerous area. And we also have the presence of a reality that wants to move us past through this tunnel as quickly as possible to the other side to safer shores. And we can, you know, we, you can find evidence for both. The choice that we are um, encouraging everyone to make is do not be blind to the evidence of the first, understand what is going on, but choose to use your input, your dedication, your energies for the second. That is a choice. And by doing so, by changing things in, in the real economy, by changing things in your own life, does that mean that we can make that transition without having to prove the first wrong, without having to say, you exactly. were wrong all along? Exactly. I mean, honestly, we don't have to waste our time, right? I mean, can you imagine how much time we would waste if we have to prove to everyone that the world is round, right? To all the flat earthers, as, as Tom has just mentioned. I mean, there's such a waste of energy, such a waste. So, you know, just focus your energy on what you want to see. And don't get involved in a struggle over a, in a kind of culture war over what people believe is true because it makes them feel part of a tribe. Don't get involved in that culture war. Instead, go and change the world anyway. You know, people play different roles in this, right? And some people may feel that that's a useful contribution that they can make. But what we've found works better is constructing narratives that help people come together rather than narratives that drive people further apart. So we do think now, and we've had conversations with people on the right of centre in the US, that there is real interest in, and desire to find a way back, right? There's, there's actually often real sadness from amongst Republicans in different roles that the party of Nixon, you know, the sort of the environmentalist past the first Earth Day that created the EPA, created the Clean Water Plan, has so disappeared from them, right? And there's a lot of soul searching that goes on in private. Now, they're never going to come out and say, Al Gore was right all along and we were wrong. 
right? And if that's the price of them entering this debate, they're just not going to join. But if there can be a narrative constructed that enables them to not feel ashamed, right, and not feel like it, we, this isn't about punishment. This is about coming together and working together for the common good. And if what we're interested in is is you were wrong all along, then it's just going to slow us down. It's not in our interests. Because it's a very strong feeling on the right that things should be conserved, right? I mean, that if history had folded out differently, you could make the argument that climate change is more of a natural conservative issue than it is a liberal issue. Um, and some of that is accident of history. Some of it is corporate capturing of, of, the, of the democratic process. Some of it is the fact that the solutions that have tended to be well known for climate change have involved more government regulation. So naturally they resist. But, you know, part of our task is to, is to bring those things together. In the book, you cite figures such as uh, Ma- Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Paolo Coelho as inspirational people, people we should follow. But there aren't many people on the right. I mean, again, what figures on the right would you say could be inspirational in, in making that future that we need to get to? I mean, I think it's a good point, right? And I think if you look back at history, what you see is that the people that get revered are those that have fought for greater justice. And they have fought for, um, you know, for greater inclusion, the reduction in human suffering. If you're being generous about the political narratives, then the then those who have been on what has historically been called the right of centre have had a belief that the way that you support greater human dignity is by 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 is by greater sort of like economic freedoms, etc., that give people the right to kind of like pull themselves up by their bootstraps, as it used to be called. Now, that hasn't really, you're absolutely right, it's a really good point, kind of led to sort of revering of those figures in the way that others have. But I would also argue beyond that that there are many of those figures who actually we might think of as of the left, but really they were apolitical, right? I mean, was Gandhi a, a left figure particularly? Maybe I'm, I'm wrong about that. Um, you know, certainly some of them would have called for more sort of social justices, um, but it's a really great point about that missing narrative of leaders on the right, and that's probably something that needs to be addressed. Listening to you both speak today and also reading your book, uh, the question that occurs to me at the back of my mind that keeps coming back again and again is what do you have to offer the people who don't sign up to the project that you want? What do you have to those who worry that the economic growth that you say is crucial to drive this change will be hampered by the very regulations you think are necessary to save us? There do exist those politicians who have emerged on the right of centre who really are no longer moored to conservative principles and ideals. And they're just pursuing an ideological project. And Donald Trump is the principal example of that. And Mitch McConnell is another example, right, in the US. And to a certain extent, unless, you know, they will be the last to move, right? And it's re- it's heartbreaking that they're in these positions of incredible power. Um, and probably you're not going to persuade them with a logical argument, even if it's a right of centre argument. However, for the vast majority of more moderate right-of-centre politicians, and I would include the Tory party in the UK in that, and in many other parts of Europe, and even Canada, potentially in other parts of the world, um, I do think that they are appealed by a model of dealing with this issue which is based on information, organisation, and investment, right? So we propose a model here that actually talks about the fact that technological innovation, the driver of economic growth, requires massive investment to develop that. It requires massive deployment of those technologies to help this transition in an unprecedented manner to construct the 60% of infrastructure that doesn't yet exist and to create those new jobs of the future. Now, 
Actually, most thoughtful right-of-centre commentators have recognised that inequality reaches a certain point when it becomes deleterious to further economic growth because you end up with a smaller and smaller percentage of the population and no capital from the majority of people to actually invest in consumer goods and other products, etc. So I think you're now beginning to see a shift in that narrative and it's become a right-of-centre argument that you need to have some kind of project you know, redistribution is a pejorative word, but some kind of mechanism that means that you don't end up with a few very wealthy people and everybody else totally excluded. And I think it's positive the way that that's now coming across the political divide. So I think in this book, those thoughtful commentators from the right who are looking for a solution that can deal with climate change in a manner that embraces the free market, that embraces the spirit of entrepreneurialism, that embraces the great forces of investment and innovation and entrepreneurialism, but at the same time deals with this challenge in a way that enables the whole next chapter of the human story to, yes, have growth, to, yes, embrace these different elements, but also to deal with climate change. One of the great stories in the States is that story of conquest, of empty space into which we can expand and, and control, even though, of course, that was all a myth all along. Is that, again, is that another narrative that needs to find some sort of counter? Well, it it is. Um, actually, you, you touch upon an issue that we've been chatting about recently how sad it is and how um, counter uh, ethos it is in the United States that the country that was created and was born out of expansion, out of ingenuity, out of a can-do attitude we can take, we can take the land and we can create something that is in the image of what we really believe in, right? I mean, there was, uh, the founding fathers were, were in that sense so bold in their vision. Uh, we can do this. We, we can have a very clear sense of, uh, of what we want and we can and we will create this. They, they were trying to make a kind of paradise on earth. Well, well, they they were trying to be true to their principles, but not stay in the principles actually created in reality, which they did. Um, and and how strange it is that that is not the spirit that is dominating right now in the United States. That there's not a can-do attitude. That is not a call to ingenuity, to creativity, to innovation. Uh, to create the reality that will be the predominant reality in the 21st century, frankly, independently of whether the United States gets on board quickly or not, because this is the direction that history is moving in. And so for the United States, that is basically the motor of ingenuity and creativity not to be in the engine room right now is actually kind of strange. It's disconcerting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it's disconcerting, but also, as as Christiana pointed out, it's kind of countercultural, right? So I moved to the US some years ago, and you kind of get off the plane in New York, and it kind of has this nip in the air, and you start working there, and like all your ideas, people are like, yes, let's do it, let's make it happen, you know, we can do this. There's this really kind of intoxicating sense of optimism and enthusiasm and entrepreneurialism. And we were just there last week. And, you know, that's still true in many ways of the US. But then when you talk about climate change, they're like, well, but the energy system's so complicated and the regulations are so difficult. We'll never get it through the house, etc. And you end up with this almost more, more European sense of history and problems which has come to be associated on this climate issue. On this particular on issue. On this particular issue, which is 
I mean, we don't have any solutions to that particularly. We're sort of admiring the problem, but we sort of observed it when we were there. And it's it's really unfortunate because the world needs that now. It needs the US to bring the best of it and the best of that perspective and attitude to solve this problem. And so maybe the challenge then is to flip this from a political problem to a kind of a, a technological one, an economic one, an opportunity. That's a good point. I think you're right. But but that's the, you know, that that's the the mystery of this whole thing. The mystery is why do we continue to insist on focusing on the doom of gloom of the impacts of climate change, all of which, or most of which, depending on how much you, you know, stick to science, um, are actually correct and should be understood in order to avoid them. And at the same time, Unabated climate change is definitely the greatest threat, but addressing climate change is the greatest opportunity. And we tend to forget that whole other side of the uh, of of the equation, and not to realize that this is, if you will, you know, the the most amazing moment to just turbocharge turbocharge our way into the twenty first century to leapfrog, certainly from a developing country perspective, leapfrog these, you know, dumb fossil fuel um, industry uh, based technologies um, and just move forward. And the, you know, the, the easiest and, and simplest way to understand that is the difference between landlines and cell phones. Um, you know, we, we tend to focus only on in, in climate, when you see it from a climate perspective, why are we obsessed with the, uh, sh- the, difficulties of landlines. They're so expensive. You know, the land to lay out the whole system is expensive. Can we reach everyone? How much data can we load on it? Uh, you know, we, we tend, we, we don't focus on the shortcomings of landlines. We're actually quite exhilarated about the fact that we have a little cell phone and that it does a thousand times more than any stupid landline phone used to do. That, you know, we're excited for that. We're excited about the fact that we now have um, communication technology that is designed to make us more efficient to, well, some of us want to be less efficient, actually, Um, but to make us more efficient, to make us, you know, to facilitate communication with each other, to facilitate knowledge, to facilitate our lives. The fact that we have, you know, I don't know how many computers in here. Um, plus we have a whole library of, uh, of books, plus we have a whole library of music, plus we have everything in here. But we don't harp on the fact that landlines were actually, you know, that nostalgic thing for the 20th century. What, at what point are we actually going to go, right, that was the 20th century. Coal was wonderful in the 20th century. It led this country and many others to the economic development that is being enjoyed right now. Thank you coal period new paragraph put it in the museum done right let's move on that's where landlines are today right um coal has got to be put in the museum so does the internal combustion engine 
And we can look forward to a 21st century that is so much better. And it's through this vision of the kind of technological revolution, through the, the technologies we can all enjoy, that is going to enable us to transcend the, the, the toxic politics where we're caught at the moment. Well, yes, but it can't be just technology, right? It has to be finance. It has to be policy. It has to be, obviously, public participation. So it's not just, you know, technological dream here. It has to come with all of the other components. But substantially, yes, we're going to be enjoying many, many other technologies. That was Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak. The Future We Choose is published in the UK under Bonnier's Manila Press imprint and by Knopf in the US. If you want to hear more from Christiana and Tom about the spirit of stubborn optimism, then head over to their campaign, Global Optimism, and check out their podcast, Outrage and Optimism. After the break, we'll be reminiscing about some of our favourite interviews and books over the years. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Sadly, it is our last episode today and it has been an incredible ride. We've had some amazing interviews and got to read some brilliant books over the years. Richard, what have been your favourite moments? Yeah, well, I've always enjoyed our feature treatments, uh, things when we've taken a slightly wider look at some issue like the, the canon of literature or the life of the book or the stuff writers leave behind. There's also one we made about the art of editing that I particularly enjoyed. I remember going to see Diana Attill at her uh, Highgate Old People's Home to talk about uh, her experience of editing for, for that programme. And I don't know, maybe we can hear a little now. What the editor must remember to do is read, and read with great attention. Make it sound like you know the author wanted it to sound. That's all. That's all. Because no book, once it's out, ever gets read with proper attention. It's very interesting, this. You can get a wonderful review from somebody who seems to have enjoyed your book enormously. Halfway through it, he says something which shows that he simply didn't understand one, you know, a sentence. He gets it completely wrong. Your editor is the person you must trust, that they have read it with complete attention. And if you're a good editor, you're trying to make it sound like you know the author wanted it to sound. You're wanting it to be as much like the author's book as it possibly can be. She says it's very simple. She says it's very straightforward. You just have to read properly. She says, <laughs> <laughs> it's that easy. She was a marvellous combination of warmth and sharpness. So it's a fantastic kind of figure to talk to. And on contemporary fiction, I remember her saying, you very often want it 200 pages shorter. <laughs> Orphan. Yes, no, marvellous. It's a marvellous way of talking as well. What about you, Claire? Oh, well, one of my high points with the various short story podcasts we've done over the years where authors pick and explain their favourites. So uh, it's like a story with a masterclass attached. Um, there are all sorts of treats like Pul Philip Pullman on Chekhov, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie on Amma Atu Naidu, Stephen Fry on Saki, Neil Gaiman on R Rudyard Kipling... Um, so just to give you a taster, here's one from the very first series, and it's Ali Smith reading Grace Paley's A Conversation With My Father. I would like you to write a simple story just once more, he says. The kind Maupassant wrote, or Chekhov, the kind you used to write. Just recognisable people, and then write down what happened to them next. I say, yes, why not? That's possible. I want to please him, though I don't remember writing that way. I would like to try to tell such a story if he means the kind that begins there was a woman dot 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 followed by plot, the absolute line between two points which I've always despised, not for literary reasons, 
but because it takes all hope away. Everyone, real or invented, deserves the open destiny of life. Finally, I thought of a story that had been happening for a couple of years right across the street. I wrote it down, then read it aloud. Pa, I said, how about this? Do you mean something like this? Once in my time there was a woman and she had a son. They lived nicely in a small apartment in Manhattan. This boy, at about 15, became a junkie, which is not unusual in our neighbourhood. In order to maintain her close friendship with him, she became a junkie too. She said it was part of the youth culture with which she felt very much at home. After a while, for a number of reasons, the boy gave it all up and left the city and his mother in disgust. Hopeless and alone, she grieved. We all visit her. On that, I'm actually, uh, I bought my very first Grace Paley book yesterday. Ah, you, you, there you go. You should listen into that. And of course, we're all waiting for, we're all waiting for Ali Smith's summer to come out and wondering whether it'll be postponed. I don't know how they can, the fourth part of her trilogy. I don't know whether they can postpone it. Hopefully things will be normal by August, but... Um, I did actually email her the other day and she uh, said she's still in the middle of writing. Oh, she hasn't finished it yet. I thought she was due no. to finish in, in March. Yeah. Looking back over the course of the book's podcast, it's always been interesting to hear from debut authors like Lisa Halliday, who I remember speaking very well about cultural appropriation, or Rennie Edo-Lodge, who was in discussion with Juno Dawson. But I also remember another author who's no longer with us, like Diane Athill, who sadly passed away. I remember a bravura performance from Alistair Gray back in 2010 when he published uh, A Life in Pictures, this combination of autobiography and kind of uh, album of his pictorial art, which he was full on with jokes and asides and funny voices and everything. And here, here he is, we can hear a bit now maybe on, on the relationship between his writing and his art. Uh, yes, they're done with different tools entirely. I keep quoting a German philosopher, and I forget whether it was Schelling, who said that sculpture and painting operate through the dimension of space, music and literature move through the dimension of time, uh, which is in some ways true, but not completely, because you can't see... There's no picture that you can see in a single moment. In order to enjoy it, your eye travels over it and explores it from one moment to another, may synthesise it finally... Of course, it's a very big painting, like a mural. Uh, You have to take it in with umpteen glances over quite a long time. Both music and poems and and novels can evoke a strong sense of space, can convey a landscape, can even give you the notion of somebody's face. It is operating spatially as well by by its appeal to the imagination. The two are definitely in parallel all the way through. Well, one is always a tremendous holiday from the other. Ah, oh, Alistair Gray. He's a one-off, wasn't he? They don't make them like him anymore. Um, another series I look back fondly on is our Books That Made Me um, series from 2010, where authors picked six books that were important to them. And just to give you an example of it, China Mieville's choices ranged from Beatrix Potter's Tale of Jeremy Fisher to The General Theory of Law and Marxism by Evgeny Pashukhanis. <laughs> that's him in a nutshell, isn't it? That's it, exactly. And just occasionally we've picked up on something that's gone on to become huge. Um, and one such was that happened recently was Janine Cummings' American Dirt, which we recorded three months before the novel was published, but it actually contains as complete an explanation as any of why, as a white American, she chose to tell this particular controversial story of Mexican fugitives. And as we know, Sean, it's kept us busy, that, that story, for the first few months of this year. Exactly, yeah. Um, and we've also done lots of non-fiction, haven't we, Sean? Yeah, well, one real surprise, actually. And I, I have to say that this job has been a real blessing for me, uh, just generally writing about books. 
um, has been great for my nonfiction reading. I never really used to read nonfiction. Um, and I've discovered some amazing books, particularly uh, on the podcast. And one was How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Um, and I have to say, I actually had no interest or knowledge of psychedelic drugs uh, before interviewing him. Uh, but his book about the history and and how they could be used to tackle things like depression and PTSD and addiction was just such an incredible book. I recommend it to people all the time. Um, and here's a little clip of him talking about smoking the venom of a Sonoran desert toad. Yeah, I don't know if I regret it because it was part of my education. But it certainly wasn't fun. No. Uh, it was uh, it was just such an abrupt and disruptive experience where, you know, as I say, I had a not only a, a complete obliteration of personality, but of everything. Matter was gone. It was, you know, I, I offer a couple metaphors to understand. One is like those little houses they built on the Bikini Atoll when they were testing the, the first atom bombs just to watch them blow up. And that's how I felt. I was inside <laughs> one of those houses. Or let's go back before the um, before the Big Bang. Well, we can't, obviously, and <laughs> nobody knows what happened. But what we know about it is that there was fields of pure energy without any matter yet and any time yet. And, and that's where I felt I was. And it was a very disorienting place and a, a terrifying place. I thought I was dying. And, uh, and I had this, it was, but it was this punishing roar in my head. And, and I did feel like, uh, there was no stillness. There was nowhere to stand. Very disorienting experience. The best thing about it was it was really short. Mm. It was over in 15 minutes. And as I came down, which was fairly rapidly, I could feel reality knit itself back together. So I could feel my legs. and I was like, oh, I've got a body. How wonderful to have a body. <laughs> and then I felt the floor. And I was like, matter. There's matter. And there's time, I, I, my perception of time returned. And I had the sense, and this was the positive side of the trip, of incredible bottomless gratitude that I was still alive, yes, and we've all been grateful to be alive, I think, but I was grateful for something even more than that. I was grateful that there was anything, <laughs> that there is something rather than nothing. And uh, you know, that's something we don't take time to appreciate. <laughs> Strong stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I really don't envy him the experience, but it's a, it's a really wonderful book about um, uh, that he, he really, really documents um, uh, his experience taking a whole bunch of psychedelic drugs uh, with a sort of writer's hat on and uh, uh, tries to basically put the ineffable into words. So it's such an interesting book. I love it. And another treat for me on this podcast, like I love, I, I, there's, there's quite a few authors that. Um, I have had the luck to actually sit down and meet and uh, through this podcast. Uh, and I always mention him, but George Saunders was an absolute treat. Um, and uh, Neil Gaiman as well. And uh, one real standout is Anne Patchett, um, who is an author. I think she's like constantly getting better and better with every novel that she writes. But I also think that she's massively underappreciated as well. Um, so to get to speak to her about one of my favourite books from last year, uh, which is The Dutch House, was, was really exciting to me. And that's all from us. We want to say a massive thank you for supporting us through the years. We will all still be writing for The Guardian, and you can find our work on theguardian.com forward slash books. Or you can connect with us each on Twitter, at Richard Lee, at Sean Kane, which is S-I-A-N-C-A-I-N, and at C. Armistead. 
And now, for the very last time, from me, Sean Kane. Me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Esther Apoku Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.